0: Well, it's the three amigos joining you on a Friday stuffed with turkey and the greatest Thanksgiving sides you could possibly imagine. Welcome, Friday, November 26th edition of The Critical Eye. Isaac Petyas, Jovan Johnson, Joe Lineski with you. The snow falling in Erie. Gentlemen, how are your Thanksgivings? Good? You guys get enough food? Still eating it.
1: <laughs> Me too, man. We we ate the good turkey, the the yams, the... The pies and cakes and, you know, all the good stuff that's that's uh, given out on Thanksgiving. It was I, great.
0: I remember my mom always used to make a comment with the leftovers, Joe. She always used to say the best Thanksgivings are the ones where you can eat it until Christmas. And she would quite literally try to make enough food to hold us over through at least part of the month of December. And it was wonderful. Wonderful.
2: Well, I needed, I needed some of that tryptophan to make it through the Bills game.
0: <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> Uh, quick, quick question for you guys. This might be the most important question we've ever asked on this show. Best Thanksgiving dish, maybe the most underrated Thanksgiving dish?
2: Stuffing.
1: I'm going to have to go with, with Joe on that one. The stuffing is amazing, man. That's definitely the most underrated in my book.
2: Oh, yeah. And it's amazing because the, the, scale, the scale of being good and being bad. Like, I've had some weird stuff and I've had some awesome stuff. Yeah, like,
0: I am actually in agreement with, with you guys. I think the stuffing's the best. My uh, my mother-in-law, we were at their house yesterday. She made what I think is the best stuffing I've ever had. She was like a sausage stuffing, homemade. You, you can't go wrong with that. I mean, that's, that to me, I could eat that by the plate full. Uh, and, I, and I did. So if uh, my speech is a little slurred today, it's not because I was drinking up. It's because I was eating up. So
2: uh, let me, I can ask you a question, a serious question. Yeah, yeah. Some people are appalled at the notion of putting the stuffing in the bird. Like, that's how it got its name, bro. It's that's, called that's stuffing a horrible... for a reason. I don't know. I don't know who
0: you heard that from, but that's a horrendous take. That's the best way to eat the stuffing.
1: Yeah, I I, saw that I've, I've actually never had it that way, actually. <laughs> oh, you have really? to move on. Next
0: year, you I have ne- to. It's the I've best.
1: never had it that way, man. I've never had it. I, I might even try it.
0: You got to try it. And like, and I used to have this crazy, crazy combination too, where I actually used to, sometimes we'd make mac and cheese for Thanksgiving. So I would have a combination and, and I know I was, I was like eight years old at the time. I would have stuffing, mashed potatoes and mac and cheese. And it was like the greatest weird casserole I've ever had in my life. I don't know. It just went, worked well together. I thought.
1: Yeah, there's Are you a the a, or a deep the fry cheese. guy on the turkey?
0: Uh, see, we actually had deep fried yesterday. It was my wife's birthday; she requested it. So, um, the the deep fried, I think, is very, very good. I think if you get the roast turkey right, though, it's hard to go wrong with that. I, I don't think you can go wrong either way. I just think you have to cook it well.
1: Yeah, you got to you got to make sure you marinate those juices. Pour the juices back on top of that roast turkey, and it's pretty good. I, I've I've yet to I've tried it, but I've yet to try to make a. a fried turkey yet. I want to try that. I, I thought about buying the, the fryer for it, but I didn't do it.
0: It's good, man. Ask without any Christmas list. Make it next year. It's, it's a good call. So, glad Thanksgiving's went well for the three of us. The Thanksgiving also went well for the Buffalo Bills last night, as they are, question mark, back to form. They take down the New Orleans Saints in the Superdome, 31-6. <laughs> to six. Josh Allen, despite two early interceptions, throws four touchdowns, goes 24 23 of 28 for 260 yards. Stephon Diggs is a touchdown catch for the third game in a row. Seven catches, 74 through the air. Uh, Buffalo did what they do. Their defense played well. They were rolling when they, when they play well. Their defense is rolling. They're stopping the run. Josh Allen's throwing touchdowns, and their running game is horrendous. Guys, you know, last night, uh, the, the Bills looked impressive. Uh, I'll give them that. It's not easy to go into the Superdome and win against any Saints team, even albeit Trevor Simeon as a quarterback. But I don't necessarily know if last night's game really told me much more about the Bills that I didn't already know. They've got a great passing game. Like I said, when they're rolling, their defense is unstoppable. They held the Saints' running game to less than 50 yards the entire contest. But they still can't run the ball. I mean, I I really don't know. I was watching last night, and I was thinking to myself, this looks like every other cookie-cutter Buffalo Bills win, and I'm not sure I know much more about them. What do you guys say?
2: That game taught me nothing. I watched that's the second straight week in a row that I watched the Saints beginning to end. And uh the the, the verdict is is they stink. Uh, the Eagles lit them up the week before. Um I'm not I'm not ready to my my opinion on Buffalo has not honestly changed. Uh, you know, they still have their warts, they still have their potential, but I don't feel any better or worse about the Bills after that game I I mean I do feel bad for the Saints fans um, you know obviously not quite as bad as a Lions fan but boy they stink that's all there is to it and I mean they're and their best their best player that that little dude Joe Vaughn I guess is uh, facing DUI charges and he may miss, I mean the Saints legit may not win another game
1: Yeah the Saints the Saints are are, are on a roller coaster right now they they're all over the place and I don't I don't really know if they're going to be able to, to, you know, survive the storm, so to speak. But the Bills, in my opinion, they didn't do what I expected them to do starting out that game. The first half, I think this game was a tale of two halves. The first the first half, they were the Bills that everybody knows, the ones that won't run the ball, the ones that turn it over and they lose games because of it. And they only had 10 points at half. Uh, I, I was kind of scared going into the second half as to what was going to be the outcome of the game. The second half, though, the Bills really impressed me. They, they ran the ball. They opened up the passing game. They did more of what I expect them to do to be a Super Bowl contender. So, you know, I think they had two different teams on display. If they can do what they did in the second half throughout an entire football game, I think they'd be pretty, pretty darn good. But if they refused, again, they still refused to run the football. And, you know, they they did put an emphasis on it. They ended the game with Singletary having 15 carries and Breida having nine. So, I mean, that, that's more carries than they've had, I guess, in the, about the last five, six weeks in the running game. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see how they continue to try to build off of that because that's what they're going to need for for the playoffs.
0: Guys, I just want to make a quick point here. And if I'm Sean McDermott, I would really look long and hard at this. I, I think Matt Breida is currently your number one back. I think he's, I think he has become more versatile than Devin Singletary. He can catch the football. This is the second straight game. He's had a reception touchdown. He looks to me like a more elusive back who sees the field better, right? I mean, we, I think I look at Devin Singletary. Yeah. The guy has speed, but I think he's more of a downhill runner. You don't see him make many cuts. Am I wrong in saying that, that Matt Breida in in my opinion, or at least from what I can see in the field is in the way I see it, the number one back for Buffalo, because I just think he does more. I think he does more with less than guys like Devin Singletary or Zach Moss, who was a healthy scratch last night.
2: Well, it certainly tells you he's definitely number two because Moss wasn't even there, wasn't even uh, active last night. You know, I, I tell you what, and you know, I look at, you know, I look at Zach Moss, you know, very similar to, to Caleb Bellage Joe Vaughn and be like, you know, those dudes were so good in college. I mean, it, it's amazing to me that Zach Ma now, I understand last year he had injuries, but, you know, this year – and I predicted last year he'd be the rookie of the year. I mean, I was that high on him. Like, I don't understand how you can be that bad, you know, comparative to how good you were in college, and then you see a lot of other dudes that you've never heard of, you know, coming out and you know being, you know, better than average backs in the league. I just – I don't is – it, is it mental? with with moss but i mean to be a healthy scratch you know what was he a second round pick last year
0: well I, I almost think and jovan you can weigh in on this I, I almost think it's the type of team the type of scheme you play in right I, I mean you you look at a guy like like let's say derrick henry or even jonathan taylor two guys that took him a couple of years to get going we know how well taylor ran the ball the bills know how well taylor ran the ball these are run first teams and I think what we learned last year with Buffalo while they were going on their run, this is a, this is a throw the ball first team. And it's not, it's not one of those teams. I, I, let's, for example, I mean, I take a look at yesterday's game between the, the lions and the bears, the lions started out the game with three consecutive passing plays that were all dump offs to Deandre Swift. I, I, I think the lions probably win that game if Swift doesn't get hurt throughout the middle of the second quarter, but there are teams that are passing teams. And there are teams that use the pass as an extension of the run. Screen passes, bubble screens, out routes in the flat to the running back. Buffalo is a down-the-field, throw-the-ball football team. And when you look at Zach Moss, he was so versatile at Utah because that team was good at running the spread. They were good at being able to find him in open space. I don't know if Buffalo's game is that. I don't know if Josh Allen – I mean, we've seen consistently – Josh Allen would rather tuck the football and run than dump it down to a single terrier Zach Moss. These guys don't get catches that often. I mean, is is that Jovan, do you think that could potentially be part of it? Is the scheme for Buffalo? Is that down the field throw? Almost like we're seeing with Kansas City or, or other teams
1: that like to air it out deep. What say you, Jovan? I think he muted himself. Oh, yeah, I did. I have my ah, The yeah. <laughs> <it again. laughs> <laughs> but no, I I think uh some of these guys in college were featured. So, you know, they were the center of attention. They were always gonna get the ball. You know, we knew they were gonna run, they knew they were gonna get catches and things of that nature. Uh, but once they get to this next level and understand that the margin of error of, of error in the NFL is very slim. So look, these guys are are. Defensive linemen are faster than running backs, and 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 in, in the case, so you know the scheme. If you have a scheme that's not catered towards running the ball and making sure that the running backs get touches, then it's going to be an uphill battle once the playoffs come. You know, every every great team that that wins Super Bowls, you know, they put an emphasis on the running game. There's no coincidence that Tampa Bay went out and got Leonard Fournette. Um, you know, a guy that in the fourth quarter, they can hand the ball off and, and he is going to get you four or five yards to carry. You know, they, you got to be able to run the ball in order to win championships. And it, it's it's just I think Brita is a better fit um, than than Singletary and, and Moss for Buffalo. But at the end of the day, you know, those guys are really good players. But when you don't get the football it's kind of hard for you mentally to stay engaged and in tune with what's going on. If your team is a pass first team and you're a running back, you want to get the ball. Jonathan Taylor knows he's going to get the ball. Derrick Henry, he knows he's going to get the ball. They're going to get their carries, but in Buffalo, that's not the same. Uh, that's not the same recipe for success.
0: You know, Joe, here's, here's a point that I want to make to you. And I don't know what your thought is on this, but I, I look at the list of running backs that are, currently leading the NFL in rushing, We'll get rid of Derrick Henry for a second because of his theory. Jonathan Taylor, Nick Chubb, Mark Ingram, Joe Mixon, Dalvin Cook, Ezekiel Elliott. So let's just look at, for example, the top five. Jonathan Taylor plays with a quarterback. Yes, he's had some success in Carson Wentz, but he's not a flashy going to beat you over the top guy. Nick Chubb, we've talked about Baker Mayfield on length. We don't think it's worth paying him. Let's move on. Mark Ingram. Well, he would be good with New Orleans, except for the fact that Jameis Winston's now out for the year. And Trevor Simeon, as we saw last night, is a backup quarterback at best. Joe Mixon, how confident are we yet that Joe Burrow is an elite guy? He's only in his first real long season after the injury last year. And Dalvin Cook, Kirk Cousins is great at one o'clock on a Sunday, but you put him in prime time in the playoffs and he's in trouble. I I mean, I I think we have to drill this point home here. And I almost wonder if for a running back like Zach Moss, it kind of goes like this. You almost have to prove that you are better than your team's starting quarterback before the team's starting quarterback proves he's better than everybody else. Because for running backs, there's no guarantee you get the football. A quarterback's gonna have a chance to throw every single drive. It's the player that gets the ball all the time. As a running back, and, and when you look at those top five or six, they have proven that they are currently equal to or better than the quarterback that they're beside. And I don't know if Zach Moss ever got the opportunity to prove that he was better than Josh Allen because that, when he came into the league, was when Allen was starting to flourish. Uh, what what do you think on that, Joe? I mean, is it is it possible that running backs like Moss, guys coming into the league, have to prove before the quarterback does that they are the best athlete on the
2: field? I feel like we're having a chicken and an egg discussion here. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, obviously, Taylor Taylor was drafted. Uh, before they got Wentz. And I believe it was Jacoby Brissett was their starting quarterback. Uh, I think Derrick Henry was in
1: was, he was that a tight, territory? I believe
2: I believe before Tannehill came from Miami. I think I'm right here. Uh Chubb, I mean I Dalvin Cook was, you know, drafted to be a featured back. What i I think what I'm getting at is I, I think to a certain extent that you're right. Um, basically from the standpoint that, you know, you're, you're, you're speaking to teams, you know, a Kansas city is, is building around Patrick Mahomes, not so much a concept, Matthew Stafford and, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent in Detroit, they built around Matthew Stafford. They didn't really build around a concept. I think Jonathan Taylor and Derek Henry, Nick Chubb, Dalvin cook are concept guys because they don't have that quarterback that stepped out, but it doesn't mean you don't need to have a great, a great quarterback or a great running back. I just think that some franchises have bought in, and I think the Bills are, are a prime example that they are going to ride or die with Josh Allen. So if I'm, you know, if I'm Zach Moss, man, I'm trying to find, you know, is there any way that I can be traded to Baltimore?
1: Absolutely.
2: Does Baltimore need absolutely? To
1: be like that ever? I, I I agree with Joe one hundred percent there. If I'm if I'm Zach Moss or or even Devin Singletary for that matter, I'm I'm trying to find the nearest uh, the nearest trade possible to see who who needs a running back that could give me the football. And I think we all know that Baltimore with the injury situation that they have, you know, who knows what those guys are going to be when they get back. That's a great destination. Who doesn't want to play with Lamar Jackson? Um, when you're going to get your carries, you know they're going to run the ball. They're not going to throw it as much as they as they run because of the quarterback situation. So, you know that that that's a great point there. I I, I 100% agree with that.
2: I got. Can imagine team. if the Eagles I, could acquire Zach Moss, and Zach I, Moss, and Miles Sanders, and Jalen Hurts were in the backfield. I think wow. I,
0: you guys. I think you guys are looking at the wrong team. There there's a team out there. That's going to get Buffalo a couple of times. And could you imagine Zach Moss getting a chance to run rampant on this former team? I'm looking at the new England Patriots. The I'm looking at a team that is still a run heavy team. They've given Mac Jones more throws. I think he's up around now 25 to 27 attempts per game. But when you look at what they have right now, Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson are good backs, but they're not necessarily the answer. If Zach Moss were to go to the New England Patriots, you you think about just the mental aspect of this, guys. This is a player that would have a chance to go play against his former team twice in the same division with an opportunity to not only show his mark of excellence, but explain to his team why he was misused in his role with Buffalo. I think New England's a great destination. They're, They're the division leaders. They get to play Buffalo twice. If you're Zach Moss, my goodness, what other team gives rejects more opportunities than New England Patriots?
2: I think I was just going to say when Zach Moss have to get arrested first or something.
0: Oh, oh, that was, <laughs> I
2: don't know about, that, but,
0: you know, maybe, maybe taking a look through binoculars and other teams practice facilities, but that's a different conversation
2: for a different day. I mean, seriously. New is, is oh, the, I mean, Corey Dillon is, the, I mean, Corey Dillon is the greatest resurrection of uh of uh Bill Belichick's career. Yeah. I mean, who would know who would know who James White is if
0: not for the fact that Bill Belichick gave him the football in almost every single AFC divisional game ever. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 3 years in a row he ran through the Colts, he ran through the Ravens, and whatever other team that was afterwards, James White scored I feel like 3-4 touchdowns a game in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, he, he's a checkdown king for Tom Brady when he was when, when he was with New England that's the guy that they can lean on uh, in games when it when it's hot hell or hot water and they need to play they can go to James White that's why they that's why they like him so much I mean the guy was arguably could could have won a couple Super Bowl MVP uh, trophies if it were for his counterpart Tom Brady but uh, at the end of the day you know being in, in New England for a guy like Zach Moss you know, I think he he's a complement to what they have going offensively. He can, get, he can really get it done in that offensive scheme. But I, I do like the two running back tandem that they have in New England right now. I don't, I don't know where, where Moss would fit. He'd probably come in and, and be a viable option. But, I mean, those two running backs are running well for New England, and, and you don't want to mess that up by bringing in a guy like Zach Moss and, and just throwing them in the fold.
0: It'll be interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you're Zach Moss, you're looking to buy the first plane ticket out of Buffalo because he, of course, wasn't used last night. He's been seldom used. Two touchdowns at the beginning of the season. Other than that, his stats have dropped off dramatically. So, Buffalo now 7-4. and four. They sit a half game behind, I guess technically tied with New England for the division lead, although the Patriots still get to play on Sunday and they'll play the Tennessee Titans at Gillette Stadium in New England. Uh, so, the Bills win. Let's go ahead, guys, and talk a little bit about the Browns and Steelers, and I want to get into what I think is, is the big topic uh, of the day or one of the big topics of the day. Um, Steelers play the Cincinnati Bengals this week, and this is, this is, I think, a game that could go either way. The, the thing that I find very interesting about this football game is how unchanged. I almost feel like Cincinnati has been the most consistent team in the league this year, for better or for worse. Their defense has not missed many starts. Their starting 11 personnel has been on the field for the majority of the season. Their offense kind of is what it is. You're going to get a long touchdown from Jamar Chase. Joe Burrow is going to give you about 250 and two to three touchdowns every single game. Uh, what do you guys make of this game? Because I I think if you're if you're Pittsburgh here, this is, of course, a must-win game. Cincinnati have wanting to win two to keep alive in the, in the wild card of the division standings. Is there any difference that you guys could see playing out in this game than compared to what happened in week number three?
2: I I think there is going to be a little bit of edge to the Steelers. Um, I don't know if there could be anything more disrespectful said to a professional athlete, Joe Vaughn can attest to this, but when, when Tyler Boyd, uh, a district seven kid of a pit Panther alluded to the fact that the Steelers quit in that, that, first game. I'm not, I'm not certain there is a lower blow to be had. And I think, uh, I think that the Steelers come out and, and really, really play uh, w- with their pants on fire.
1: That's going to be a good, good game, a great game, to be honest. Cause you know, a kid from Pittsburgh that, came out and made that statement you know that that's going to get those guys fired up they they, re, they remember that I'm sure they didn't forget you know what was said and I think going into this game both teams have something to prove because they haven't played up to par of late and I think the Steelers are really going to come out on edge because you know they got something to prove and they they want everybody to know that they're they are who we expect them to be but it's gonna take them to get those guys back off of injury and have, you know, a full lineup to go out there and, and get it done. And I don't like the defense that they had when they went against uh, the Chargers last week. I don't I didn't think that the the guys they had on the field were a benefit to their success.
0: No, it was it was brutal. And at least the good news for Pittsburgh this Sunday is it appears that Minka Fitzpatrick and TJ Watt are both going to play. They've both been activated. So we'll see if they're able to go on Sunday. If that's the case, you like the Steelers' chances a little bit more. Let's shift quickly to the Cleveland Browns here. Um, Kevin Stefanski just a few moments ago telling reporters Kareem Hunt, Jack Conklin, likely to play on Sunday. My gosh, does Cleveland ever need Kareem Hunt back? You talk about a team that's offensively been in distress the last few weeks. This is this is going to be a tough game for Cleveland. They get Baltimore, guys. Um I like the Ravens in this one. I like it close. They, I mean, these teams will play each other in back-to-back games. Cleveland will have a bye week, and then they'll play Baltimore again. Um, I, I want to start with you, Jovan, on this. Is it? Is it? To me, it's a major offense for a team to have to play a divisional opponent two games in a row. I mean, is it? does that change the strategy of how you go about game one, knowing you're going to play a team again in game two?
1: I don't think it changed the strategy. I think it gives you an idea – going into the game that if you have a a certain game plan that you want to go out and execute, give or take what happens in the game, then you know that, you know, you might have to scrap that game plan or you can keep some things from that game plan. It just gives you a a different way of looking at it to kind of see, okay, what worked, what didn't work. And and the team that makes the most adjustments in the, in the second game is going to be the team that wins the team that wins the first game, you know, They'll probably stick to the script as far as the game plan goes, but it's always tough to play a team back to back. We, we ran into that a lot in Canada uh, in the CFL where, you know, Labor Day and, and, you know, they called it the Labor Day classic where you play a team one week and then the following week you play that same team. And there's always battles. You know, the first game will be whatever it is. And then the second game will be drastically different. So it's going to be a good testament to see what the coaches are able to dial up and, you know how well they can kind of structure their game plans. You know, in, in the two games because it's it's very rare that you get a team back to back in the NFL.
2: Joe, you got anything on the? Well, I mean, what is it? Thirteen players on IR for uh, for the Ravens. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't really like it. It's it's not ideal. It's it's not necessarily good. Uh, it's not good for the end of the year, quite frankly especially with, with two teams, uh, you know, that fancy themselves in the Super Bowl postseason conversation. Because let's be honest, if it's two-game sweep, the loser's season's over. Um, you know, it's going to be almost in, impossible to climb out underneath that. Um, you, know, they've, you know, they've changed the way they schedule. Where divisional games are now all in the back end of the season, I get that. But to me, it's unconscionable to have a team play twice in a row in the Browns' case, because of a bye week, I, I don't, I don't like it. I think it's dumb, and it seems contradictory to what uh, the focus was—to have all these meaningful divisional games the last weeks of the season.
0: Yeah, and so I guess we'll see. Uh, Cleveland-Baltimore, that's going to be, you talk about three huge weeks for the Browns. Do they need this game ever? And we'll have insight on those two games, NFL end zone at 1130 on Sunday. These gentlemen will be in here on Erie News Now on WSCE. All right, let's shift to this guy's college game. I know this happened earlier in the week, but we have to address it. James Franklin is going to be the new bench boss, or I guess the continuing bench boss, I should say, and PSU for the next 10 years, Franklin signing a 10 year extension earlier this week, seven and a half million is his base salary. Of course, as we know, though, college coaches get private jets, saunas, and free trips to the golf course nearly every single day. So there will be plenty of insurance policies for Franklin. He is the coach of the Nittley lions, at least through 2031 and a pretty hefty price to buy him out too, guys. I'm going to admit I like to root for Penn State. I'm a Penn State fan. I think when James Franklin came to University Park, he was a great proponent of this team's success. But I'm not sure how it is possible to, if you are Sandy Barber at University Park, to give this guy 10 years with that incentive. Listen, if you're James Franklin, this is great for you. I mean, you basically get a free contract with no incentives to leave at any point in time. It, did Penn State make the right or wrong call, Joe, I'll start with you on this, to give James Franklin essentially control of the team for the next decade?
2: Well, I actually wrote about this for uh, NittanySportsNow.com, and I, I'm actually, I think, in the minority here because I do think that this is the right right hire. But I think, I want to I read something. With the support of President Barron, Sandy Barber, and the Board of Trustees, we've been able to create a roadmap of the resources needed to address academic support, community outreach, name, image, and likeness, facility improvements, student-athlete housing, technology upgrades, recruiting, training table, and more. The renewed commitment to our student-athletes, community, and the fans reinforces all the reasons I've been proud to serve as your football coach for the last eight years and why my commitment to the Penn State remains steadfast. Throughout this process, I've kept our leadership council recruits and staff updated on those conversations. I'm excited we've reached an agreement we can finally share. Now, there is some coach speak in there, but there's a lot of truth in there as as well. Um, Beaver Stadium is a dump. It's an erector set. Great environment, but it's a dump. Uh, the facilities have been something that, you know, even Bill O'Brien complained about. James Franklin was very outspoken about. He did get a raise, but in the grand scheme of things, a minimal raise. I think there is a lot of truth into that statement where, you know, he is trying to retool the way it looks. And I, I wrote about this, and it's, it's really sort of strange. But do you know who Penn State and any of these other big boys are trying to impress 15 to 17-year-old boys. The recruiting is the lifeblood of a program. And, you know, with all the money and and NIL stuff, and, you know, where where the game has gone in, you know, in 15, 16, 18 years, it's a different animal. I think James Franklin embraces, even though I've heard he's insulted at the notion that he's a CEO-type head coach. I think he embraces it. I also think Nick Saban, is a CEO type head coach? Did he take advantage of a situation he had two lame duck administrators in, uh, in in President Barron and Sandy Barber? Absolutely. What great CEO doesn't manipulate a room with their strengths and their and their weaknesses? Um, I, I mean, I he's rec- he recruits at an elite level, and you know I'd much rather have the Johnnies and the Joes than the X's and the O's. And I I, I think Penn State. I think Penn State matters. I think he makes them matter. His contract extension wasn't on the bottom line; it was its own line in big in big red uh, uh, a banner at the bottom of ESPN. He matters. He makes Penn State matter. And by the way, I think this is you know my final point before somebody else's turn to respond. On the fifteenth of December, Penn State is going to sign Drew Aller who's uh, on three and rival or N247 uh, sports number one quarterback 10 years ago on the 9th of November James Frank or excuse me Joe Paterno was fired and all the experts said Penn State dead in 10 years James Franklin has brought them back and in 10 years they go from dead to the number one quarterback in America
0: you know it's interesting you make the point on that Joe and Joe Vaughn I want to ask you this in, in just a second but You know, the landscape of college football a few decades ago was very, very much different. I mean, the powers that were on television were not your Alabamas or the teams down south. They were the teams up north, teams on the coast, USC every single week playing against Washington, Penn State playing against Ohio State, Michigan, all your Big Ten schools. Then the SEC started to take over. You know, I think we look at college football – as a since the institution of the playoff we look at look at it with different tiers there's division one division two and division three yes there's a power five and the group of five i understand that but then there are the elites and then there are the great teams with the bcs era i think it was hard to distinguish the elite teams you knew which teams were great right Alabama at the time, Oklahoma, Florida in the Tim Tebow era, Ohio State with Urban Meyer starting to come over there and coaching that offense to perfection. We knew the great teams, we knew the ones that were going to constantly compete for those top two spots every year. But we didn't really know who the elite teams were which teams would constantly rise to the top because there was always confusion. Again, you look at a year like 2007, the Kansas and Missouri year, where there were flip-flops at number one nearly every single week. Now that we have the institution to the playoff, I think when you look at college football as a whole now, you have added an elite tier. The teams that you know for sure are going to be in the playoff, Alabama, Ohio State, mostly every single year, Oklahoma. We know that these guys, Notre Dame too, is always going to be in there. Now Georgia is a part of it. And I think we've looked at teams that are great, great programs, very good to great programs, lesser because of that. How are you going to compete with Nick Saban in Alabama? How are you going to get by Kirby Smart's defense? How in the world are you going to be able to stop powerhouse Ohio State and Ryan Day? When you look at the majority of college football, it's not those programs. There is such a power difference now in where we were a few years ago and even a couple decades ago to where we are now. And, and Jovan, the way that I see this is this. Penn State is in that very good to great tier. And I don't know what it would take to get them to an elite tier. Maybe it's Franklin continuing coaching. Maybe it's the number two recruiting class in the nation that they're going to have. But it's very difficult in my mind to have a name other than the four or five teams that have been there for a while and not be elite. It's why in the NFL, New England never dies, and we see them how they're doing this year. Is, is that kind of... I don't know how you see this, Joe Vaughn, but at least I think we've separated into different tiers in college football. And it's hard to make any positive comments about teams that aren't in the elite tier, even if they're a great program.
1: The, the teams in, the, in that elite tier... You know, Power Five schools, the Alabamas of the world, the Ohio States of the world. The reason why I think a lot of the recruits tend to lean towards those programs is number one, facilities. You talk about LSU and winning the national championship a few years ago, Alabama consistently in the national scale, Georgia, Penn State, you know, there are some things that need to change with that. Uh, facilities management team down there but you know Ohio State Michigan you know they're they're always going to get really good football players because of their facilities on campus when they when a player is 16 17 18 years old goes to visit these universities the first thing they're going to notice is you know how well put together the organization is but also how the facilities look if you can attract 17 and 18 year old kids with the facilities They're going to be in awe when they come to your campus. And I think James Franklin has done an outstanding job, given that he's he took over for one of the most legendary names in football history, uh, Joe Paterno. And the Penn State program kind of went in shambles for a little bit, and then he's brought it back out of the dirt, and he's building it back up to to stardom. I think the reason why they extended him for those years is because, of his ability to attract young, skilled football players. And what makes Penn State from the good, the great, to the elite is signing the number one quarterback in Drew Allard. He is an outstanding player, and he's going to take Penn State with the players that they currently have and put them on national status. And I think that's the reason why they want to keep Coach Franklin in Penn State because he has the ability to recruit. And recruiting is the name of the game. If you can't recruit in college football at Power Five, you're not going. You're not going to have success. And to to constantly be in the top one, two, three, top five in recruiting classes um, is what's going to keep you at that national prowess. And I think he's had the he's shown the ability to recruit at a, at a very high level. I mean, you just talk about some of the kids that he's recruited. I mean, the kid from Meville not too long ago. If it wasn't for uh, the heart uh, incident that he had, he'd be a NFL running back. I mean, the the man has, he has recruited some outstanding football players, and Penn State is on their way back. And I'm I'm I hate to say it, but you know I think they're going to challenge Ohio State for many years to come for the Big Ten.
2: Guys, thirty
0: seconds to go here. I want to ask a quick question: Does Penn State win a national title in the next ten years?
1: Yes. Jovan. I- I, I I mean I, I guess it's up it's up in the air, but I think they I think they'll have a, a very good chance.
0: Well, I like the optimism from both of you. And listen, again, we know James Franklin's a darn good coach, and that's the question: Can you sign the players to get yourself to a national championship, knowing how pivotal and how big this Big Ten conference really is? All right, great episode today as we go into the weekend, week number twelve, the NFL season commencing on Sunday. We've got the NFL end zone Sunday at eleven thirty with these two. And we'll also have a podcast on Monday. It'll be overreaction Monday. Three high school games this weekend as well. Pret, McDowell, Meadville all trying to make it to the state semifinals. This is the fun time of the year, folks. Do not go anywhere. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And on Monday, it's more back with The Critical Live. Von Johnson, Joe Ledneski. I'm Isaac Petcash. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your NFL.